everybody, welcome to another Canine Mind Freak episode brought to you by Canines on Duty. And today with me, I've got Derek Copeland, who is a master sergeant and a kennel master. And uh, Derek, you've got what over, you've been a kennel master for how long now? So this is actually, uh, I've been a kennel master twice at two different, uh, two different commands. Um, so uh, a couple years for each command, basically. Okay. And uh, our prior interview, you were saying that you have 15 years of training dogs, but you also had three years of sport dog experience. So technically, you can't be in sport dog if you don't know what you're doing. You got to know how to train the dog. So technically, you got 18 years of dog training experience. Yeah, and that, that was a whole different uh, ball game on, on the, the, the sport dog um, side of it. You know, when I was, uh, when I was outside of the U.S., um, that was really cool to, to experience that. Nice. That's cool, man. And, uh, oh, that's what it is. You have, over, you have over 12 people under your command, over 12 handlers under your command that you manage, formulate training regimes for them, so on and so forth, right? That's correct. Yep. Uh, yeah. Quite a few uh, handlers. And then I also have uh, trainers that work for me as well. Nice. That's awesome. So what I wanted to talk to you about today, seeing as how you're um, what some would call an authority in the field. I mean, you're employed by the military and this is your primary job is to, to work with not only handlers, but also the dogs. And man, you know, as well as I do, training the people tends to be harder than training the dog <laughs> oh it's it's uh yeah I, I go through that uh every every single day it's it's way more difficult the dog just sitting there and looking at me like hey i got this and the handlers looking at me like uh can you tell me that again <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is exactly why our podcast exists is because we want to take people like you your experiences we want to put the psychology to it and then figure out why some things work better than others so for today's episode, I want to talk about the overuse of e-collar and some of the things that you've experienced with uh, people that are too heavy-handed with the e-collar. Now, obviously, this can translate into even hand corrections, like with a leash and a, a pinch collar. Any form of correction can be overdone, but I kind of want to dive into, for our audience, I want to dive into um, some of the consequences of, of being too heavy-handed. So sure. can, can you tell us a little bit about some experiences where you've witnessed uh, too much e-collar and so on and so forth? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I think two, two things uh, come to mind with that is, is, is one being just, um, I guess, in general, I think everyone uh, is using that e-collar uh, for dogs that, that, that don't like to out. Um, and, I, and I see that uh, overused uh, quite a bit. Um, and then the second thing that also comes to mind and is, uh, is, is e-collar um, that, that I personally experienced uh, during um, gunfire aggressive behavior. Um, so those are two kind of realms, I think, that I, I've seen it quite a bit, um, one being the out and then one being trying to uh, correct unwanted aggressive behavior, um, which never tends to work out the way people you know, think it will. <laughs> That is definitely true. <laughs> so in your experiences, um, from a military standpoint, we know that there's a big difference between sport dogs, military dogs, and even police dogs. There's always the difference. It's just different deployments, different scenarios. Um, what I find, it seems like more military dogs, especially if you get into like uh, the special operation type dogs, they tend to be more hardcore than what we would want a police dog. Would that be an accurate statement? They seem just more, if we're talking about dual purpose, they seem uh, a bit more 
Yeah, so I, you know, I guess it kind of depends on, on what your definition of hardcore would be. Um, I, I think um, we see a lot more neurotic behavior, right. um, especially based on how, how the, the living conditions and living environments. Um, like I said, I mean, I got quite a few dogs with uh, under me, and um, you know they all live together, and that is just one crazy environment. So I, I think that does a number on the uh, on the brain of the dog when they're constantly living in that environment. So which tends to fester, you know, different uh, different behaviors um, that maybe some people that take their dog home with them aren't used to really seeing. Um, so so I, I would say. Um, there is a little bit of truth to that for sure. Um, I, I guess it just kind of depends. Everyone has their own definition on that, but uh, right. sometimes uh, we have some really neurotic, weird behaviors that we get just from their living environment. Sure. It seems like some of the other military guys that I've worked with in the past, it seemed like their dual purpose dogs were just a lot more hardcore than like a normal police dog. You know, let's face it, some departments, yeah, they get a lot of deployments. I did an interview with uh, Daryl Gaunt from Paraclete Canine. He works mm -hmm. for the LA County Sheriff's Department. They get mm -hmm. over 600 deployments a year. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so some of your inner cities, yeah, their dogs tend to be tougher because they need to be. But then sure. you've got a lot of departments across the country where it's just demographics. Their dog may get one or two bites their entire right. career. So they don't need this hard, crazy dog that can, you know, be thrown through glass windows and, like, sure. you know, all that other stuff. Some dogs just have to be that way. And it seems like the military dogs have to be that way depending on their area of operation in the world sure yeah now you know that makes a lot more sense um obviously um you know kind of in, in a overseas deployment type capability these dogs do see um uh, have the tendency to see a lot more um environmental um things than, than you know what we would see here so um you would definitely like the dog to be uh, a lot more environmentally stable than uh, sure. than most so yeah for sure and, and have a to higher tolerance for anything. It could be climate, it could be surfaces. Um, I've personally seen uh, police officers that were kind of like uh, maybe from Colorado or from where I'm at here in, in Boston area, where it's more grassy, there's more regular you know, wooded areas, but then they do a competition in Arizona Sure. where it's hot, a lot of dust, and because the dog's not conditioned to that, they don't do well, where sure. it seems like, go ahead. Yeah, no, and, and now I was just going to say real quick, and that, that bring, that, that's, a, that's a huge thing, too, no matter where you're at. I think just simple things as uh, climate acclimatization. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone wants to throw their dog in a nice, uh, super cool or heated, you know, if it's the other opposite uh, vehicle or, or house and the dog, uh, they're like, man, my dog hates working in, you know, hot or, or, or cold climates. I'm like, yeah, you never really properly acclimated him. So yeah, of course. I mean, if you, same thing with us, you know, if, if, if we're not used to working in that environment, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back to what feels better for me internally, which is, you know, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to get somewhere cool. Um, right. so yeah, you know, it's, there's a lot that goes into that for sure. Well, and then the other thing, and what I'm trying to do here is create like a, a list of um, like comparative behaviors. Okay, so why, the, the question is, and we're not going to know the answer to this, but the question is, is there a higher percentage of dogs that need behavioral adjustments, like eating the handler, turning on the handler and biting them? is the percentage higher in the military because of things that we've talked about so far, like kennel environment, training methods, uh, training ideology, um, the, the fact that they have to be more environmentally sound for the different areas of deployment. When you're in the military, you could be in the jungle one week, you could be in the desert another. 
granted, I think we have our consistencies based on current events that are happening, but there's still that possibility. You really never know where you're going to get deployed to where most sure. police dogs tend to, I mean, if you're with a County, you're going to stay within your, your County boundaries. Sure. And so the dog and, doesn't have to experience anything outside of that. Right. Yeah. It kind of, you know, they, they train for what they see, which, which is, you know, correct. If it's, you know, if it's a County dog or state or whatever it is, obviously uh, it's, it's more advantageous to train for what you actually see um, in your area of operation, um, you know, versus, you know, it's always good to go outside of that as well. But, you know, right. you know, that definitely makes sense. And, and I would, and kind of to answer, like you said, we're really never going to have an answer to that question. However, I would, I would say, I think from my experience and, and, um, and, you know, I, I've taught seminars to some PD units all across the U S as well. Um, and, and I, for us, you know, military handlers, um, see a lot more, they work a lot more dogs than, than civilian PDs. I mean, you have civilian guys that may have one dog their whole career. Um, you know, and very rarely, you know, if you stay in it long enough, maybe two or three, but usually just one, you know, it's where you have a military handler that maybe has been, uh, you know, handling for six, seven years and he's already worked eight or nine dogs. So, um, just from that, I think standpoint alone, maybe those, uh, th those bites, uh, handler aggression issues and things like that will be a little bit more prevalent, um, in the military, just cause we have hands on more dogs typically than your average, you know, civilian police, uh, canine. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a numbers game at that, that, that at this point. I think it's you know they, right. they just have eyes on more. Sure, sure. Now tell us a little bit about without like obviously I don't want to cross any moral boundaries here, but I know that training ideology it doesn't matter what business you're in. It doesn't matter if you're independent dog trainer, if you work for a police department, or anywhere else. You've got these um, training standards like. Ipwata, Napwata, you got PSA, you've got Swig Dog, so on and so forth. So we, sure. we have all these different areas where people are working and teaching other people about dogs. So sure. the question is, is what's your opinion on some of the ideologies of training? <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. So, um, you, you know, without getting off on a, on a crazy tangent with some of these certification agencies, um, and, um, you know, I, I think just in that aspect alone, uh, we have too many handlers and trainers and, and whether military certification or civilian certification, cause I've, I've been part of that as well. Um, too many guys are training for certification, um, and not what they're seeing out, you know, and all on the streets or on a deployment or anything like that. And, uh, that, that's, that to me, that's dangerous. I mean, um, you look at your certification level and, and these things are so bare bones and basics. I mean, it's ridiculous, uh, how, how, how basic these are, but you go out there and you a lot of these seminars or different things being taught literally towards your certification. And it's like, uh, handlers up for failure if this is what you're training to uh, if you're training correctly then that cert you shouldn't have to train for the certification because that certification is such an easy piece um, that you do once a year or however many times you do it um, that you don't have to do that but instead you know people just spend way uh, way too much time on that certification piece and they they miss the real aspect which is deploying that dog sure well and that brings me going back to what we originally started with we talked about the overuse of any type of correction but because you've had so many experiences with the misuse of an e-collar sure. i think that everything we've talked about really plays into that so we talked about kennel environment and dogs having a level of um, neuroticism you've got demographics how much is the dog being exposed to different things 
Um, and then the constant change in handlers from your perspective, uh, sure. dealing with military personnel. Um, so the dog is going, getting handled by many different people. And then you have training ideology. So one handler might have a really good methodology and the dog's working well, but then all of a sudden you switch handlers and yeah. that creates a lot of confusion on the dog. And it, go ahead. Sure. And, and with that, you know, we, um, on that second part of your question with the ideology and training and different things like that. Um, yeah. You know, everyone has their own niche of different things that they like to do. Um, you know, however, I, I think a big problem out there is, is, uh, is, is what I like to call uh, kind of some theory based trainers. Um, and, and I think, you know, we have to have theory in the beginning, which is where, you know, everything kind of stems after that. Um, but I think too many people are, are putting out um, information that's not been vetted through multiple um, repetitions with dogs. And I mean, just because it worked on one dog, you know, you should be out there spreading this stuff. Um, you know, like I said, you know, hey, cool, it worked for that dog. But man, like, you really got to get hands on a ton of different dogs to, to really vet this. Um, and, and there's just a lot of people out there that are putting out, I would say, not the best information. I'm not going to say wrong information because there's a million ways to, to get a dog to do something. Right. I, I try to look at it as, do I want a permanent solution or do I want a Band-Aid? And it seems like a lot of these things that are out there are Band-Aid fixes um, that are going to come off at some point further down. It may take a year, if not longer, but those Band-Aids are going to unravel. Or that Band-Aid may stick, but then you may start feeling that pain in a different area of your training. Sure. Sure. Well, and that's something that I've, I've talked about in some of my other interviews and podcasts and stuff is that everybody has ego. We all do. Sure. But some people, I think it depends on what the motivator is. Some people are motivated by money. So in order to get more money, you have to appear to be an authority in this area. And how does yeah. most people perceive being an authority? It's creating something new. Like this is my own uh, you know, <laughs> program and, and yeah. And it, I think some people create new things with the right intentions, but they don't understand enough about the world of science, in my opinion. Sure. And, and just to kind of, uh, you know, piggyback off of what you just said there. Yeah. A, a lot of it is money motivated, which is, I think the wrong mentality. I get it. Everyone's got to make a living and different things. And, and, um, but you know, the way I look at it is, is, um, is, is, you know, if we're out here training, um, military guys, civilian police handler guys, if we're, we're out here teaching them this stuff. I mean, and then they try to implement whatever we're showing them and they end up getting shot and killed. I mean, that's, I, I don't know how somebody could, could live with themselves just because, you know, uh, they're making money off of something that hasn't been vetted. I mean, that's just, that, that's, that's wrong. Um, yeah. you know, and, and, and just real quick with that too, and, you know, I'm not, I, I'm never going to mention names or, or anything like that, but, uh, the, you know, I, I have been part of that. I left, um, um, certain companies and people that, that, uh, that would say, Hey, I want you to go out and teach this. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and when I started looking at it and I'm like, I don't feel comfortable teaching this only because I, this isn't what I, I don't believe in this. Um, I feel like this could be a danger to the handler if we're showing them these things. Yeah. Um, and, and believe it or not, uh, the owner of this company told me, um, well, you know, this is what the departments want. This is what they want. So this is what they're going to give them because if we don't give this to them, they're going to go somewhere else. Totally get that. But I, I, I ended up, I said, no, I'm done with this. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and teach uh, teach something I don't believe in. Um, and then have these handlers, you know, be, and it's funny because, you know, all these different seminars and, and conferences, and I've taught at, at a few conferences as well, major ones. Um, and there's so much information out there. And I, and some of these handlers are so brand new that they don't really know 
um, how to digest and dissect some of this information. And before you know it, they're trying eight different techniques that they learned and the dog's looking at them more confused than anything. Yeah. Um, and then they're trying this stuff out on the streets and, and uh, if it's a military guy on deployments and it's going to get, you know, it, it definitely can get people hurt. Sure. Well, and I think for me, that's why I ended up selling my kennels and um, really diving into the science because how do we know what's actually right and what's wrong? Sure. Well, if you look at a, a case study, a, a scientific experiment, you got to have a minimum sample size. Then you have to have all your statistical data for like figuring in outliers. How, in other words, how, what percentage of this is just due to chance? You have to figure that in. So any dog trainer who wants to create their own technique better say, okay, I've done this on a hundred dogs. These are my, this is my statistical data. All the dogs with these same things in common, this worked 80% of the time. Well, now you know that 80% of the time with dogs that have similar behaviors, that 80% it's going to work. So that could be my go-to thing. But yeah. nobody's doing that. They're just saying, hey, I feel like this has worked on 10 dogs, so I'm going to start yeah. using this. But what if that was just, what if, what if three of those dogs were outliers? What if, yeah. what if it actually only really worked on 7% of the dogs, so seven dogs? And then yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and when you said 10 dogs, some, some of these people that are out here teaching some of this stuff, I feel like is uh, that's even stretching it. They may look at three dogs, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, one of an, an old mentor of mine uh, that I, that, uh, that, that I knew for a very long time, he would always tell me that, um, that w when he would teach, uh, you know, his program was, um, you know, the, everything, every time he would always say it, he goes, Hey, this is a way, not the way. Um, and I, and that's always kind of stuck home with me is, is, you know, there's a million ways to do it. Um, and, and some of those ways, you know, uh, are better than others. Um, some of those ways take a little bit longer, um, you know, than others, but I think what it all boils back down to is kind of what we've been talking about overall is, um, how are they teaching? How do they feel like they're presenting this information to the dog and how do they think that the dog is receiving it? Right. Um, and that's where I think we run into some problems. So let me ask you this, how many times have you seen handlers and or trainers in your line of work use harsher tactics to get an out, like the overuse of the e-collar? Have you seen that a lot? Um, I would, I mean, I, without, you know, I, without doing a study on it, uh, you know, just giving a ballpark estimate, I, I would say it's pretty high, 80, 90%. Um, you know, you, you have your, uh, your, your, your positive reinforcement trainers out there, um, you know, but you, you still have a very, very huge following of that old school way that I think um, anybody that's, that's been training for over 10 years was also brought up in, which is uh, just yeah. compulsion, 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 um, you know, basically making the dog do something, whether he likes it or not. Um, without any type of reward in it for them. Sure. So, and, so yeah, very high amount, I would, I would still say. Now, let's say, I know you don't have an exact figure, but it's very high. How many times have you seen the harsher treatment on the dog work? So I, I think it's very dog dependent. Um, you know, some, some dogs, I think, um, take to it a little bit easier than others. Um, but then again, like I said, it, it, that, that you may get that dog to do that out task, but guess what? Because of all the compulsion you just used on him now, he hates, he's, he's basically not working with you. He's working against you to get what he wants. And then you have all these other issues that come in. 
um, you know, instead of building that good relationship with the dog to where the dog wants to, to work for you, um, now the dog is kind of seeing you as a, as a barrier instead of a pathway to get what he wants. Um, so I, I, man, I've seen that, um, you know, tons and tons of times that were, um, and, and I think a lot of it boils down to the, the biggest thing that I've always seen after all the, the compulsion and everything else is kind of that handler avoidant behavior, mm -hmm. um, whether it's on a bite or, um, or just playing, you know, or, or there's just no trust in that, in that working right. relationship. Yeah. And you know, that kind of goes into the, uh, the question, can't these people see that it's not really working the way that they think it is. You know, I think back to Albert Einstein's definition of insanity. I was just thinking that, yeah. <laughs> doing the same thing over yeah. and over again, expecting a different outcome. Or is it that the ego is involved and they choose not to see that it ain't working? It's only pacifying the problem, but it's creating other problems. But because those problems are less than what the original problem was, I'll take it. Yes. It's, a, it's an acceptance. Yes. And, yeah. and, and, you know, that's, what's funny is, is that, um, you know, just going around and, and looking at different um, civilian police departments and, and training and teaching with those guys is, is, uh, is yes, you, you're hundred percent right is, is, well, you know, this was a big problem. We fixed that, but now this creeped up, but it's less and we can learn to work around it. And it's like, well, why would we work around it? Why don't we fix all this as much as uh, I guess, genetically willing um, and, um, and, and, and have a better dog. Why are we accepting um, this or that or this or you know whatever the case is why are we accepting that just because we're putting band-aids on things you know at some point right. that adhesive is going to get 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 dried up and it's going to wear off um, you know and, and 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 of course you know um, it's always going to happen at the worst time yeah. <laughs> you know the, the, the famous you know famous sayings and all that is is you know when uh, that that's going to be what what happens is, is you may have fixed it uh, you or what you thought fixed it but then uh, you get into a, a hairy situation and then all that band-aid just comes right off and you're like yeah, right. it sucks yeah absolutely um, you know you and I we talked last week uh, we did a little bit of work together on some of the dogs, and uh, I ended up calling you back because I was super excited about this this uh, article that I read about dopamine. And this one article, I don't have it in front of me, but they were talking about dopamine and fear responses. And what they did was they put a bunch of uh, this, I, I'm not sure if it was like a microchip or somehow they implanted something in the in a rat's brain and then they could shine a, like a blue laser into the rat's eye and it would activate this microchip and it would make the area of the brain that produces dopamine produce do dopamine. And sure. so they gave the, the rats this electrical shock, uh, small electrical impulses on their, their feet, and then they showed the rat how to make it go away by pulling a lever or pushing on a button or something to that effect. And what they found is that rats that had higher dopamine learned faster and they were able to remember it, which is important. Sure. And so then I started thinking about all of this, this uh, talk about dogs. What is dopamine? Well, dopamine is the feel-good hormone, right? That's the, the pleasure hormone. And it tells the body to do it again, right? Sure. And I was talking with a few, or uh, well, one other trainer in particular, and we were kind of talking about the idea that we make bite work fun in some cases. Not all trainers do this. Some train based on pure rage and aggression. I still know people that will rip the hair out of the dog's chest or whack them in the paws with the whip to really piss them off to tap into that. Sure. 
Personally, I don't agree with that. I think I want it to be more positive that this is all fun and I slowly build up to the harder things. Um, and I didn't know as much about dopamine as what I do now, obviously, but it makes a lot of sense. So if dopamine tells the body to do it again, isn't it true that if a dog turns and bites the handler and the handler goes away, the dog's brain has to say, hey, that worked for you because they stopped the fight. You won. Sure. So then there's going to be a flood of dopamine. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of why the heavy handed training ideology with really harsh e-collar corrections or pinch, I don't care what, it, what method it is. If the dog is fighting harder on that and eventually you quit, maybe you got to go on to a meeting or who knows what happens in yeah. normal handler's life, then the dog's brain is going to say, hey, that worked. Yeah. And so it's going to be rewarded with a little bit of dopamine. Sure. No. And I think, uh, I definitely think you, you hit that right on is, is, um, is, you know, like I think everyone hopefully knows is, is, you know, their, their brain is definitely uh, very similar to what ours is. They just don't have maybe some of the capacities and, and, uh, and thinking that we have. Um, but, but, but if you, you look at, um, say your, your, your typical, uh, pet dog, right. Um, brand new, brand new dog. They see, you know, that person come up to the door, they bark at him. That guy goes away. That literally takes one time. And that, that behavior is locked in that dog's mind. And it's a strong association. Um, and, and, and to break that is very, very difficult. Um, so you take what you just said is, is now you're, you're, you're actually talking about biting, um, I think, um, you know, with just that one bite for sure. I mean, you're, you're, that dog is creating a variable, very powerful message, uh, and it's, and it's mine it says, yeah, you know, if I bite the handler and, and of course, you know, the dog doesn't understand, we got to go get stitched up, you know, if we have to go get, we got to go take the, we got to go take care of this dog doesn't understand that. So in his mind, he's like, oh man, this is it. I don't like this situation. I can bite my way out of it. That's right. Um, and, and mom or dad is going to leave me alone because they don't, like I said, they don't understand all this stuff that, that we understand. Right. Um, so, so no, I, I think that's definitely, um, you know, and, and you can almost see it too. It's funny because you know, after conversations about dopamine and looking back at certain things and, and behaviors in dogs, um, when something bad is happening um, to what maybe they perceive that they don't like, when it's over, you can almost see them, their whole body posture, just be so like, you know, like relieved. Mm -hmm. um, they may be, you know, super tired and stressed out, but the rigidity of, of, of all their muscles, it's almost, it, it almost looks like it's jelly. They're just like a pile of blob, you know? So if, if that's not a feel good to them, because now they finally get to relax, you know, so, you know, like you said, that I think that dopamine can, can happen at any point, whether it's something that they really, really like, um, or if it's something that is really, really bad that they want to stop happening. But then when it stops happening, that's also a positive for them, too. Right. So they're still get so they're still getting that dopamine release. Right. Well, I think a lot of people don't fully understand what reward actually is. And if you look at psychology, definition number five in my psychology book said that it was any pleasant event that follows a response and therefore increases the likelihood of that response to reoccur in the future. Sure. Now, the reason why they put that definition there is because they understood what chemicals do for the body. The body doesn't react unless there's those chemical productions. If you're being chased by a lion, then your thalamus sends the signals to the parts of the brain that create uh, cortisol, which is the HPA axis, the hyperpituitary adrenal gland. So you have adrenaline and you have cortisol. Cortisol is the fight or flight. That tells the body, run away. But then 
your body has to reward itself for running away and surviving. So that's where the sure. dopamine comes in. And it says, repeat, next time a bear's chasing you or a lion, run away and do this and you'll probably live. Yeah, so thank God we have that part of our brain, right? Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we just, well, yes, yeah, so hopefully most people do. I think there's still some people out there that may not. But, um, but so let me ask you this then, right? So uh, with what you just explained, um, and, and you hear this term thrown out a lot as well, um, and, and I don't know, again, there's lots of terms that people throw out, and I don't think they truly understand it. But with what you just said, how we think, how dogs think, um, very similar and, 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 and everything like that. Um, when you hear someone say, well, you know, anthropomorphic, right? We can't put our human emotions on dogs. Well, I understand that. But if, if, if our thinking is very similar, then how is that a bad thing? Right. I, it's, I don't think it is. I think where the term anthropomorphism comes into play is misinterpretation because the definition yep. of anthropomorphism as it pertains to animals is when you compare an animal behavior to a human behavior, and if yes. there's a superficial similarity, you'll falsely put those emotions or intentions onto the dog. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what I've always kind of believed as well, is, is I yeah. think it's a, a misinterpretation of information. Um, right. Because, you know, like you just said, is, is for the reward definition, right? Um, we may think that the dog is feeling, um, you know, rewarded or whatever the case is, but in all actuality, we really just don't know what that dog thinks is a reward. Right. Um, just kind of like how we had uh, that conversation, I think last week about the muzzle fighting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I, and I told you about that dog that we had um, years and years ago, and this is why I stopped doing muzzle fighting. Um, and, and, and that dog just, I mean, you, I would put this dog up with anybody in a muzzle. I mean, this dog was just a monster. I mean, you talk about, you know, the vocal, everyone, everything that everybody looks for, they're like, oh my God, this dog's an animal, right? Um, great, great dog and muzzle. And then um, you know, we, we had that incident to where um, there was a worker down in a basement that we were doing some training in and uh, we sent the dog down in there just because we we're doing a routine search uh, for, for training. Um, didn't know the guy was down there. Um, and, you know, we heard screaming and ran down there. And, and, and long story short is the guy, the guy goes, no, no, I'm fine. Never got bit. The dog just was wrestling and, and head punching him. So to me, right, that dog, that was his, that was his reward. He would rather do that than, than bite. So, and how do we know that? We, we don't until it actually happens. So right. why put that dog and why train that dog to do that? Because, you know, because even if you have, say, even if your dog has bites on the street, right? It's just, I, I just wouldn't do that. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of one of those things with goes back to reward is, is what do we really think the dog is getting rewarded for? Yep. Well, and that's a really good point of view right there. Um, for me personally, I stopped doing muzzle fighting years and years ago. There's a lot of trainers that still do it. And I'm under, yes. I have the belief that, look, if it works for you and you haven't had anything bad happen, then go for it. But then there's those of us like you and me, sure. for me, I don't want to take any chances. 100%. Right. If a dog perceives headbutting because of the muzzle keeps them from biting, they didn't know to headbutt until you did muzzle training. And then they realized, hey, I love doing this. This is so much yeah, more fun than biting. Yeah. And then when you take the muzzle off, they're going to gravitate towards whatever they feel is the most rewarding or pleasurable experience. Sure. So yeah, it makes and, perfect and, sense. Yeah. And, and that's, um, you know, the, uh, as in this was way early on in my, my, uh, my dog career. So, you know, I think we've all done a lot of stupid things to dogs and, and different things like that, that, uh, that uh, we've learned, hopefully learned from, but that's one of the things I definitely learned from. And, and from that moment on, 
Um, you know, and, and I tried some different things afterwards too. And like we discussed, you know, I said, well, Hey, let me, let me do this muzzle work and then let me, uh, let me have my guy in a hidden sleeve, you know, and let me, uh, after we do the muzzle work, um, and have the decoy kind of on the ground limping away like a dead rabbit or whatever the case is, I'm going to strip that muzzle off and send the dog for a bite. Um, hoping to try to curtail what maybe the dog perceived as, Hey, this muzzle punching is more fun than actual biting. Um, did that, did that work? Hell, I don't know. You know, you're going to have people out there. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, you know, no man. Like there's no way to gauge that. There's no way to judge that and say, Oh yeah, that's the way. Um, you know, but you know, after, after looking at that and doing that too, I just decided altogether that it just wasn't worth doing it because I can still get behaviors that I want without having to put a muzzle on the dog and, and teach muzzle fighting, you know? Right. Well, and two, don't you think that that creates a little bit of a risk to the decoy? Because with muzzle fighting, the dog's all over the body. Sure. Like they're yeah. punching the back and the shoulder, and then you give a guy one concealed sleeve. How do you know that the dog's actually going to target that area after it yeah. just got done hitting the guy all over the place? A hundred percent. And, you know, we, we could we could talk about this stuff for hours. And, and that's yeah. the other piece that I looked at, too, was um, which which I think is another falsehood out there is targeting. Um, you know, I, I think the reason why we have to teach a dog to target is because we jack them up in the beginning and teach them and feed them the arm and they do all this other stuff. And, and at the end of it, they're like, oh my God, my dog won't bite a leg. So we got to do leg work. No, your dog won't bite the leg is because you always fed him your arm. There's ways of training to get around certain things. If you can teach the dog to bite what he comes to first without feeding it to him, mm -hmm. that's how you get around that. And I've, and I've definitely, we've seen that with, with, oh my God, probably over 50 dogs. Wow. Um, you can teach a dog how to target without teaching him how to target, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. You know, the, the problem is, 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 you know, people using equipment and sleeves and we, we do that to ourselves. We teach the dog how to, how to target the arm by feeding it to him and, and doing all this crazy stuff. And then we, we, and again, that's a band-aid. Then we paint that picture and to the dog, dog goes, Oh, decoy feeds me the arm. Well, if I don't have the arm, I, I there's nothing else I can bite then. So then we got to go, Oh God, we got to get in a suit. We got to teach him how to bite the back or, um, you know, all these other things. And it's like, it's just, it's, it's crazy to me. To yeah. think that, you know, that, 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 you know, and, and, and like you said earlier, you know, some people have great success with that and, and that's perfectly fine. Um, I have just seen a different way um, that shows that you don't have to overexpose your dog to equipment to get them to do what you want. Right. No, I think that's a valid point. Um, I've seen that a lot throughout my career as well, where people have this false idea that this is going to work for every dog. And that's why I'm a big believer in just putting multiple tools in your toolbox because just like humans, every dog is different. Sure. It's just like people, you know, yeah, yeah. a punishment. And, Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and I said, like you said, it's a, it's a tool for the toolbox. And I, and I used to um, teach these decoy seminars, you know, I, um, I, like I said, I would like to think I'm a pretty good decoy. I had some great teachers um, early on in, in my career. Um, and, and, you know, I used to teach that stuff, but man, I've really evolved in, in the way of thinking and, and different things like that of, of yeah. why do I need, and not only that, I mean, hell, if I can get the same result without having to put on that nasty ass suit that 25 other people that have worn, you know, why not? Um, and, and, and realistically, I think it does the, the dog way more, um, you know, uh, justice than putting mm -hmm. it, than having them bite this big old marshmallow suit, you know, right. which is, it's, it's silly to me. So let me ask you this. Let's go back to the, the e-collar, the misuse sure. of the e-collar on and out. Sure. What do you think is going on in the dog when they get nailed with that? So I, I think, um, 
you know, just from looking at behaviors um, for, for many years, and I'm, and again, and by no mean, I'm an expert in psychology and behaviors. Um, but, but, you know, I've done a little bit of research on things and, um, and, and I, and, and it's like pet dog trainers, you know, and I, and I kind of compare this because an e-collar um, use in the pet world versus the law enforcement military world is people utilize it the exact same way. The first, my dog doesn't out or my dog, you know, I don't want my dog to bark, whatever the case is, what's the first thing they do? They go grab that damn e-collar, they throw it on and they start zapping that dog, right? Well, we all know dogs are super, they, they have that superstitious behavior. I truly believe that, that you really have to show them what something means for them to really understand it. Just like in training, right? I think most people agree that um, if, if, if you're, you got a brand new dog and you're training them to sit, you're not most people, the old school way, you know, was that, that, you know, escape training, you know, you're pulling up on the lead and pushing down on his butt until he, you know, does it. And then his reward is that. Right. Um, but I, I think with the e-collar um, is, is, is really misused only for the simple fact that the, that the dog doesn't really understand what that is. So whether it's outwork or if specifically for outwork, right? So you got this guy, you throw it on him and then they start zapping him. Well, to me, I truly believe that the dog is thinking that the decoy is causing that behavior of, of that sensation. So when we teach the dog to fight harder when that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so without showing the dog what this truly means, because everybody's impatient, I think that's kind of the American way, right? Where people were normal, everybody wants things now. Nobody, you know, is, so they put that on there and then they start, you know, zapping, zapping, zapping. Um, the dog has no, we, we take for granted that the dog knows what that is. He has no idea what that is, how to turn it off. So when he's on that bite, right, what is, what is the belief like you talk about to the, of that dog when he's on that bite? Well, we have shown him that through all this stupid and crazy suit work, right, and whips and sticks and we're beating the shit out of him. When, and, and, and what do we do on a suit when, uh, when the dog gives us something that we want? We react. We tell him, "Oh, good boy." We do all this stuff, right? So, and, and we're 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 pushing him. We're 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 testing all these different things. Well, now we're putting the e collar on him, and we're doing the same thing without really getting the dog to understand what that sensation is. So, a lot of times he bites harder. Wow. Um, and then and then before you know it, whether it's a you know dog try 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 whatever you're using, you're on the highest level, um, and he still isn't letting go. Um, and, uh, and, and then, um, it's funny, you know, we can, we can circle back around at some point to the gunfire and e-collar, but, um, I even had a guy tell me, he goes, Oh, we'll put two e-collars on them and pair them to one remote. Holy crap. What, well, you know, <laughs> no. And, and what happens after that cattle prod, like, you know, like, uh, are, are we going to expose wires from a 220 bolt or whatever? You know, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like, that is a very, very valid point. Um, I think some people would argue, well, but wait a minute, what if I did teach the dog what the e-collar meant and there's still a fight? I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier because of training. We train the dog whenever you feel a neurological sensation, when you're on the bite, you dig in deeper and you fight harder. It's contextual. Very much so, yeah. Which is why... For me, my definition of a correction is anything that interrupts the brain. So it doesn't matter if it's an e-collar, it doesn't matter if it's the prong collar, a choke chain, a little poke in the ribs, a loud noise, like a a loud whistle. And I've experimented with this in my kennels. So many people are under the impression that a correction must be painful in order for an entity to learn its lesson. Right. But think, I thought about this years ago when I started learning about the thalamus. So we know that the thalamus is 
the, the operator switchboard. It tells information where to go. Dr. Bruce Lipton says it this way. He said, let's say you have a bacteria infection. Your brain is going to send all the energy to the infected area to fight it. That's why we feel tired when we're battling an illness. But then all of a sudden you're being chased by a well, he, he says saber-toothed tiger because he's going back to the beginning of mankind. But <laughs> right. if you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, your brain is smart enough to know that if the tiger eats you, you don't have to worry about the, the bacteria infection after that because you're just gone. So right. then the brain or the thalamus of the brain says, hey, this is more important right now. Pay attention to this. Sure. And then it literally will even put fighting a bacteria infection on hold. So sure. that you can get your, all your energy to run away from the tiger. So then I started thinking about us, us humans. And I, I've been in that position before where I was talking with somebody and I was telling this really detailed story. I was into my story and someone came up behind me and poked me in the ribs. Well, guess in an instant, my thalamus activated and said, something just happened that was unexpected. Stop what you're doing. Pay attention to that. Right. Isn't that the mission of training is to get the dog's attention off of whatever they're focused on and back onto the handler. Sure. And, right? and, and you know, what's funny is, is that, that whole thing and what kind of triggered a thought in my mind when you said, uh, you know, noise or something like that to interrupt is, is, uh, is it's funny because that's a very old school way of uh, doing outwork or a, uh, or a recall work, right? Is the old, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the old uh, toggle chain in a bucket. Uh -huh. um, to where, you know, you take that and, and you throw this thing and it makes an incredibly loud noise um, in a pan or a steel bucket or whatever. And the dog's like, oh my God, and he pops off the bite, right? Um, you know, and, and then, like I said, but if you, but the way that that was taught was, oh, the dog is scared of that noise. So that's why he's doing it. Well, no, it's not necessarily, yes, he may be freaked out because he's like, what is that? Mm -hmm. But again, it goes back to what you're talking about is, is that thalamus and, and different things like that. And the brain can only really focus on that one thing at a time. Right. Um, and if it's new, it's going to have, I think from what I've seen, if it's a new type of noise or new environment, a new sensation, whatever, that's going to be really prevalent because the dog's never experienced it before. Yes. So, so, you know, but you keep doing that and the dog's like, I know what this is. No big right. deal. I don't give a shit about it. Here we go. I'm still going to continue to bite or do whatever. Right. Well, and I think that even something like that method right there can be abused. Sure. Like, oh, uh, yeah. Example, when I did my experiments with sound distraction, Mm -hmm. I used a small Mountain Dew bottle with a, about four pebbles in it and the dog would be on the bite and I would smack it on my leg, right? Same, same concept, sure. right? I have the, the chain in the bucket. But what I did was I did it softer in the beginning. Boom. And you see the dog look like, what was that? But then they say, yeah. okay, that's not a big deal. And then they go back to the bite. Well, then I'd get a little bit harder. Fui, boom, a little louder. And I would slowly climb up until I got that dog to say, what was that? And then they slip off. Did that work for every dog? No. Same right. thing with the sudden jolt. Some yeah. dogs, they're on the bite. You say, out. You give them a pulse, and they come off like, what the hell was that? Sure, but then they sure. look back at the handler, and the handler, in my opinion, should be, oh, good boy. Yeah, smile on their face. Right. Why? Because you don't want the handler to be part of the fight because you've yeah. already trained the dog that if somebody is fighting you, you fight yeah. harder. And that's, that's funny. I was just getting ready to mention that is, is we just, you know, I know that you're doing that as an experiment um, in different things, but then that goes right back into um, audio, uh, you know, dogs are audio, they're all these different things, right? So that goes right back to when we're doing all these things to the dog, 
we are actually teaching them to fight through all this stuff on a bite and different things. Right. And, and again, they have to, right. Because not every, not every, um, uh, you know, bad guy is going to be sitting there taking a bite, just laying past. Some are, you know, the dog guy has to be able to engage past uh, as well. Um, but, you know, you do have those maybe one percenters that want to fight with your dog. So the dog has to understand how to do that. But we take that way overboard. Um, and then we almost make it unworkable. The dog, uh, when he's, when he's doing bite work, um, you know, and, and, and it's funny because I've, I've personally, uh, done that with the dog and this was a phenomenal dog. Um, and, and I, I, you know, and, and again, we all learn by our, our failures and past mistakes and I'll be, you know, you got guys out there that no, no, you know, that, that, that are afraid to admit those shortcomings, but I'll tell you what, this dog was phenomenal. And I literally ruined this dog to be able to work in a team environment, um, because of how much pressure. I made this dog so sharp that he was just an ass eating monster. Now I had no doubt that if I needed him to bite, he would definitely bite. Um, but Holy crap, man, I put um, so much pressure on this dog and why? Because I was like, because I kept pushing, you know, and that, and, and I kept pushing and I kept pushing more and I kept pushing more. Um, that goes back to the e-collar work and, and we're teaching these dogs to be so hard on the bite. Um, and we do it so often that we make them just unmanageable in certain contexts and certain times. Um, and, and like I said, this dog was so phenomenal and I could even have him off leash. I mean, I could do area searches off leash and he would down in a scent cone. He would do everything I asked him to do. Um, but I could not really employ that around a team because he would literally, now the obedience was there and I, I and sure. And I had the confidence that I could, I could down him and he wouldn't go after somebody and I could interrupt that burning pattern. Um, but that just wasn't a chance I was willing to take. Um, right. to get one of my guys bit, um, you know, for that. So, um, but that was all that pressure work that I did. I made that dog just, you know, he was, he was just so hardened um, on, on, on a bite and outwork. And I think that plays right back. We do that, but then we go, dang it, my dog don't out. We, why do we have to get into out? Well, certification. So it goes back to training for certification. And then we stick that e-collar on them and we're just fighting against the dog for the very same thing we told them to fight through. And then that's where all those band-aids get stuck on. And then that's where the handler avoidance and all this stuff comes into play. Yeah. I think more time should be spent finding trainers and handlers who really know how to read individual dogs. And I'm not sure how anyone would go about doing that. But if you think about it, if we know that one technique is not going to work for every human, one punisher is not going to work for every human. You know, my son, I could swat his butt and he had such a desire to please dad that he would do it. But if I swatted sure. my daughter's butt, she'd turn around and look at me like, bring it on, do it again. I don't care. Right. Yeah, so yeah. We know that it's not going to work for every dog. And that's why I believe sitting back watching video of a dog, kind of like a fighter and getting ready for a fight, what's he do? What do all the great boxers do? They watch oh, their prior bout. Yeah. Yeah. How is he slipping punches? How, what's his short rhythm like? What's his long rhythm like? How, did, how well does he work angles? And they find those weaknesses. So they already know a lot about their opponent before they even get in the ring. How come sure. we're not doing the same thing with dogs? How come? And I'm guilty of it too. I've learned the hard way. I learned through the school. Yeah. Hey, when I see a dog looking like that, I'm going to get my ass beat here because yeah, yeah. I've experienced it. And then I knew I learned the hard way, but there's gotta be another way for, for trainers and, and handlers to learn the differences in dog behavior and then saying, okay, so these tools I have over here in this toolbox are for the really hardcore neurotic, maybe a screw loose dog, but I'm not going to use those on this dog over here. That's a sure. whole different toolbox. Sure. And, and I think, um, 
Well, and here, I think it always goes back to the problem, which you mentioned earlier is ego, right? Um, If you talk to anybody who's been dogs for a little bit, um, they'll tell you, oh, I know how to read a dog. Don't insult me by telling me I don't know how to read a dog, right? Um, You know, because we've all, um, we've all been there, done that in in reading dogs. So I I think it's one of those things that, um, that, you know, some people really got to truly say, okay, maybe I don't know everything, you know, and Mm -hmm. maybe I, maybe I can learn from this. Um, but, but I know, you know, in the, the, the psychology realm and all that, there's always a lot of pushback with that, um, yeah. with, well, you know, um, dogs and humans are completely different. So, you know, we can't take this, um, uh, we, we can't take the psychology of the human brain and put it on the animal. Right. Um, but then it goes back and that's just kind of a naive way because they really don't understand that. Well, yes, I, I get a lot of these studies that have been done on rats and in different animals other than dogs, but uh, scientists have already told us from actually studying the brains and, 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 and how things work and the different uh, pathways of the brain that they are very, very similar to humans. Yeah. Um, so if this works with humans, there is a 99% chance, you know, right. that it's going to work. Now, like you said, every human's different. Some things don't work and it's just like dogs, you know, mm-hmm. uh, some techniques work and some don't. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, as a, as a whole, um, I think trainers and, and handlers, we just all have to do a better job of, of being a little bit more smart on these things mm-hmm. rather than just, uh, um, you know, because this is how Bob did it. This is what Jim told Bob, you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's just a pathway of misinformation. Um, right. and, and a lot of people just don't know any better. Well, and that to me is pretty absurd too. That's like saying, well, the carburetor in that car is completely different than the carburetor in this car. Yet they look different and each manufacturer has their own patent on the carburetor, but the concept of how they work, it's all the same. It's all the same. Yeah. The yeah. Same. They're just, yeah. Yeah. Little tweaks here and there to, yeah. to, to how things work. Um, but the underlying, um, underlying issue is, is very, very similar. You know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 yeah. it's the same thing. Well, um, that's but, yeah. the, the, just like, um, that's, that's part of my studies is the differences and you'd be surprised the thalamus in a human brain works the same way it does in a, a dog's brain, the hypothalamus, the pituitary glands, it all does the same thing. And one scientist that I just read uh, a couple weeks ago, he said it this way. He said, the parts of the brain are the same. They have the same function, but a dog's brain is smaller. There's just not enough real estate to right. think about things as deeply as we do. 100%, they can't yeah. solve complex problems as good as a human because we have more real estate in the cranial cavity. So right. that means our brain is bigger. And if it's bigger, you have more neural connections. And the more neural connections you have, the more you can process. So dogs just have less, but the functions are still the same. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think the biggest thing, you know, that I try to get across to, to everybody that, you know, whether it's my handlers that work for me or anybody else that I talk to is, is, is the two big takeaways that I always try to tell people is, 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 Contextual learning is is absolutely huge in, in, in animals, yeah. um, and and it plays a huge role in the training, um, and, and how they view the world. Um, and then two is is like you talk about um, the whole psychology aspect of it. We have to really understand um, the quadrants of, of learning and, and, and how all these things play in because man, I tell you and understand reward schedules. Like we talked earlier, you know, most people don't understand, or if you ask them, Hey, what's the quickest type of schedule to be extinct? They don't know, you know, and those are really important things because if somebody is telling you to do something on a continuous schedule, well, guess what? That is the quickest schedule that can be extinct. Um, 
And, and yes, and everybody, oh, well, you got to reward the dog every single time in detection, right? Well, yeah, if you do that for seven years, every time you get to find and, and you reward them every time, well, now you go, hmm, I want to try to put this dog on a variable reward, right? And then you're going to have somebody out there that's letting this dog find something four times without paying him. And guess what? He's going to stop responding because yep. he was on a continuous schedule for so long that that schedule is so quick to go away that you have to, you have to kind of approach it in a different manner if you want to get to that point. Um, so I, there's just so much misinformation out there. Um, and, and I think, like you said, you know, um, it's, it's certain things you can get away with, um, you know, like timing, it's already been, we, we can prove all day long that if you pair a ward with something that the dog doesn't understand at the same time, will they get it in time? Yes, but they don't get it as quick as if there is that delay. Um, so there's certain things I think in animals and training we can get away with, um, but at some point it's going to show back up and maybe you're not going to get, you're not going to tap the full potential of that dog. Right. And you know, that's actually a really good point too, because think about case law. If we're talking about like policing, case law is always changing and always evolving depending on what cases go up to the federal level. How serious of an issue is this canine wide? Like for example, before Terry Fleck passed, um, I was the uh, CEO for a, um, a company and we traveled around the country doing seminars for law enforcement. Well, Terry Fleck came on as one of our instructors and uh, are you familiar with him? Okay. And uh, you know, he, I'll never forget a few years back, he was saying, okay, this case has been tried at the federal level, but it was, it was thrown out. They, so they didn't win, but they were, the attorney was arguing that the dog's nose broke the plane of the window. And technically that's pri private property. You didn't have PC yet because the dog hadn't finished searching. So if the dog had finished searching and then indicated, and then the dog's nose went in, fine, you already had probable cause. Yeah, but because there was no PC, technically the dog was trespassing. And the dog is technically an officer of the law. So therefore the department trespassed on personal property that goes against constitutional rights, so on and so forth. Yeah. So what Terry was saying, he goes, look, the case got thrown out. It's totally bogus. However, why not be smarter than the, the, criminals why not be smarter than the, if they're going to use this then do we really need the dog's nose to go in the window the answer is no right. a dog if if you when they when the suspect gets out of the vehicle you're getting the air rushing out when you close the door air is pushing back in you just made the entire vehicle breathe which means that the dog can actually smell that odor on the seams sure does sure. the dog need to break the plane the answer was no so now you got all these now you've got da's after hearing this over the years, they're saying, we don't want your dog to touch a car. We don't want your dog to, you know, no more paws up on the vehicle. You don't have to do high fines. And we definitely don't want the dog's nose to go into the window. Sure. That's happening. Yeah. No, it, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's that whole thing is, uh, is pretty crazy. And like I said, I, I don't, I don't dive too much into the realm of that aspect of it because I'm sure. a military guy, you know, we still yeah. have our, our, our laws and UCMJ stuff and all and probable cause and all that. But I'm in, you know, no means an expert on the civilian side of, of all those laws and all that craziness right. that they do. Um, you know, but you know, a simple fact, you know, just, just from a detection standpoint, right. And, and that's, it goes back into, to, to the learning theory and how the dog learns is, is what are we teaching the dog that, and I dealt with this, um, maybe six months ago when I first took over where I'm at right now was, was, um, these dogs, man, on, on inside vehicle plants, they all wanted to jump inside the vehicle. And if they couldn't find a way, guess where they went? They left. 
Yeah. They left. Um, and, and I don't think they were leaving odor. I, I j just looking at the behavior of the dog, I honestly think they go, okay, well, I can't get to it here. Let me go over here. They're like I said, they're smart, but they're stupid too. Right. Mm -hmm. So they get so frantic because they can't put their nose right on it that they leave and they can't figure out not all, but some can't figure out how to get back to that. Right. right. So why, why are we, why are we teaching the dog that he has to put his nose right on it? Because we're creating depth issues. We're creating so many issues. Um, that we that people just really aren't thinking that they're creating, right. um, you know. So so it, it's just it, it just kind of goes back into the whole thing on on, on how, how the dog is perceiving the environment and context sure. of what he's doing. So. Well, and life and environment is always evolving, always changing. Just like I was mentioning with the case law. So there are those agencies that now have to retrain their dog because I've been sure. doing it this way the entire time. Now this case law came down, even though it's bogus. My DA thinks it's the a very good idea. So now how do I get my dog to stop? And because they're not equipped with thinking outside the box, the handler, sure. they don't know how to solve the problem. Or, and like you said, when you're talking about reward ratios, if you're doing fixed ratio all the time, and then all of a sudden something happens and you need to fix that because now it's no longer desired by the command or, you know, with case law or whatever. Now you've got to learn how to modify things. Well, have you ever been shown? And most people, no, I already have a working dog. What do I need to change this for? They're 80% reliable. Why right. would I need to push for 90? I'm okay yeah. with 80. Yeah. And I think there's a disconnect um, with, with the human psychology versus, you know, applying that to dogs too. Because, you know, I, I don't think I have, there, there hasn't been too many places that I haven't been that everyone equates the very, the people that really believe in variable um, you know, they're always talking about, oh, it's like the slot machine, you know, what, what keeps humans going back and playing, you know, in Vegas and all these other places. Um, it's that, it's that belief and that hope that says, Hey, you know what, if I keep at this, I'm going to get it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but then you have the other side of, 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 of the people that go, no, no, you know, that, you know, the other argument is, is, uh, is, you know, if you don't, if you go to work and don't get paid, you're not going to want to continue to work. Well, yes, but I also don't get paid every day. I get paid every two weeks. Right. So it's, it, again, that's kind of a mute point too, because it's like, I don't get right. paid every day. You know, that money comes in on the first and the 15th and I'm still working. Um, just yeah. like I, I, there's not too many people I know out there that get a paycheck every single day for work. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it's just one of those things that there's a lot of, I think just misinformation on, on all sure. this stuff that's out there because they've been, taught by somebody who has been taught by somebody who really didn't understand. It's just a whole downflow of wrong information. Right. Well, and two, if you go back to that example about the casino and the slot machines, do you realize people that are compulsive with that, they're addicted to the dopamine. And the dopamine, what happens, yes. they baseline, yeah. the body adapts to it. Uh, they get numb to that level. And so yeah. they need more and they gamble more. And then what happens? They either end up in jail, they commit suicide, or they get picked off by a loan shark. So right. technically speaking, if you want to compare that, let's look at that. A excuse me, a dog yeah. who's always self-rewarding self yep. because to get that fix, what happens? Of yep. Something's going to happen that's not good for the dog, not good for the team, and you create bigger problems because there's not balance. Right. You know, the, the, yeah. the old saying, uh, everything within moderation. Sure. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and, you know, just kind of like that, that example you gave right there um, it, with that, with that dopamine. And that's what people really don't understand is, 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 is that dopamine release. So you look at it from a dog standpoint, right? 
they're not getting rewarded every time, but yet that, that anticipation is building because they didn't get what they really wanted primary wise, but that odor and just them responding, whether it's a sit or down or aggressive response, whatever it is that in a, in a sense, the dog is getting a dopamine release from that because through his initial imprintation, right? It was, it was continuous. Um, so, you know, just the mere fact of him smelling that odor, he is going to get a flow of dopamine release. Well, he may not get his primary reward, such as a toy, but he goes, man, on this next one, I'm going to get it. So that dopamine, it's just like you, it kind of, it goes up even more, even more. And that's how we tap into that and use that to our advantage. Um, you know, versus, you know, kind of flatlining that on that continuous reward every single time. I I think, um, you know, when you're on that continuous reward schedule, um, it gets boring after a while, you know, we, to us, but then, uh, you know, and then again, like you said, moderation and, and taking it out of context. Well, does the dog get bored with a continuous reward schedule? No, because he still likes that stupid rubber toy, right? He loves it. He's going to work for it. However, we can make that in behavior so much more intense by building those, those, those building blocks and stepping stones of that dopamine release yep. when it happens. I couldn't agree with you more. And the question is, is the dog actually being rewarded as they're chewing on that ball when their body has adapted to that level of dopamine? So you look at, uh, for example, why do people bite their nails? Typically it's nervousness, right? And that releases the penned up energy that they have in chomping on their nails and they get a flood of dopamine because it caused the cortisol levels to drop. It was a thing of comfort. But does the person legitimately enjoy biting their nails? Most of the time, they don't. don't, Most people that have a severe nail biting problem, they really want help to make it go the way because their fingers are all bloody, they're sore all the time, but yet they still do it. It's just the reward of, of it now after five years of chomping on your nails doesn't have the same impact as what it did when you first did it. Sure. Now, now I think um, that right there, right? So we look at, and this is where I think we can, we can get into some different arguments with different people about certain things, right? So we look at that and say, okay, we as humans have the capacity to think about all this stuff, right? The dog doesn't, right? So the dog is not going to get tired per se of chewing on his, his reward to release that, uh, you know, that pent up energy. So I think there's a little bit of differences there. And that goes back to, what you talked about earlier, I think, is their brain cavity and space is so much smaller, so they don't have enough room to process all this stuff like we can. Well, uh, yeah, sure. they don't have the ability to explain it, but right, right. it still is happening in the brain. That's why we sure. have, because we have to remember, how do we program the subconscious mind? It's through repetition. Repetition, yeah. And especially when there's something pleasurable involved. Sure. Um, for example, Uh, people wake up for a cup of coffee in the morning. In the very beginning, coffee was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And now, yeah, if you don't have it, you're missing something because that's part of the norm. You you would change the environment, which then builds the desire. But if you woke up and somebody had a fresh cup of coffee by your bed every single day, eventually it's not as a powerful of a reward. It's still a reward. And if they don't have it, then it's, it's creating some other issues, but sure. it just doesn't have the same meeting. It for sure. Doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, go ahead. I just oh, feel like, I feel like a lot of dogs that still grab the reward and chew on it. I feel that it's not as fun as what it was in the beginning when they learned how fun it was. And that makes sense because the body adapts to that level of reward or dopamine. 
So that's why it's the handler's responsibility or the trainer's responsibility to say, okay, so let's do it this way. And like you said, with the, um, uh, the, um, changing the reward timing of it. Um, now you're building more anticipation, which is an extra dopamine dump. Yeah. You know, so now you're, you're bringing the newness back to it by changing things up. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the same reward object. However, the context and how you're giving it to them is completely different. Yes. So it's, yeah, so it's, it's building, um, it's just tapping into that, to that dopamine release to try to figure out how we can manipulate that. Because um, obviously, you know, psychology and science has shown that we can manipulate how much uh, gets yeah. released and different things. And we just got to be smart enough to, to, to apply that to the dog and, and, uh, and figure out, um, you know, how we can manipulate uh, uh, that to, 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 yeah, it's this same old, old Kong. But that's why, you know, you, you get some of these old retired dogs, 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, I had one um, that lived with me for about a year that I, that I took home. And man, that dog was, was, was hilarious because, you know, the old, the old school adage of, oh, you can't. Um, you know, you still got people out there is, oh, you can't let them have that reward. You got to take it from, you know, he's going to, it's going to lose value. Well, if you look at it from, 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 you know, what we're talking about here in dopamine, could it lose value? Maybe with the, you know, that dopamine kind of flatlines, right. It's not as exciting to them, but I think through all the subconscious mind of the dog has had that for so many years that it's just kind of ingrained that he, yeah. that he leaves it and he enjoys it. So he's still going to take it. Well, right. so this dog, it was funny because I had him for about a year before he passed. And, uh, and, and once I brought him into my house and let him have his, I said, yeah, man, take it. You know? And it was funny. Cause he was kind of, he was so confused. He goes, wait a minute. Like, you're just going to let me like have this thing days on end. And, uh, and so <laughs> he would still chew on it. But as he had it more, um, it was it was more of a uh, he would carry it around and sleep with it. So when he would get up to go get a drink of water or go outside, he would pick it up, take it out there, drop it, do his business, whatever he had to do. Then he would pick it back up and go right back inside. You know, he, so it was just kind of funny to see that um, kind of happening. But you know, I, I haven't seen too many dogs um, in their older age that that don't want anything to do with that ball. You know, they're, right. they're you, know, you pull that thing out. And I think it's just a learn type of thing that, oh my God, this thing was super fun. You know, this is, you know, especially if they were, you know, most of these working dogs were, um, you know, that taught all this stuff when they were pups. So that's, you know, that those first learned behaviors become super strong in that mind. And, and so I think they're always going to like it if, if you have the right, right dog, you know, of course there's some working dogs out there that are borderline that probably shouldn't be, but, um, <laughs> you know, you know, and, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how that whole dopamine and how that, that whole piece works with, with uh, animals. So I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine, Simeon Dunker. He was a handler in the army. Um, I believe he was a handler for eight years. He was an MP and he's uh, been to some of the top trainers in the U S and he has a lot of experience. He's been training dogs um, for a long time. I think even before he joined the army, he was training dogs, but anyways, I called him after I talked to you about the whole dopamine thing. And he says, well, that makes sense. Now I didn't know why this worked, but it did work for dogs that were aggressive and not wanting to give up the, the ball. He goes, what I do, I throw them in the kennel and I'd put 20 balls in there with them all the time. And then every day I'd go in and I'd pull one ball out. And when I got to the last one, the dog never tried to bite me. And he goes, that makes sense now because there was desire for the ball that was being held by the handler or the trainer. Right. And I only get it when they give it to me. So then it's like, okay, now I don't want to give it back because I don't know when you're going to give it back. Yeah. Yeah. So now there's that desire there, which is why they wanted to hang on to it. And then they get rewarded with dopamine because nobody can get the ball from them. 
Yep. So he said, here you go. Here's all the balls you want. Chew away. And the dog said, okay, this isn't fun anymore. So in other words, yeah. the dog baseline, the dog is yeah. body adapted to that level of dopamine. He says, okay, sure. I need more now. What do I need? And by the time he gets down to that last ball after four or five days, the dog says, okay, well, you got to do something with the ball now. And then he's yeah. playing ball. And then the dog says, okay, I get it. If I bring yeah. it back and drop it, you're going to pick it up and throw it again. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that kind of goes back to, like I said earlier, is, is teaching the dog that, that we're a pathway and not a barrier That's right. um, to, to reward and to get what they want. They have to work with us and interact with us. But, but, you know, going, going back um, to that whole thing is, is these, these dogs, man, like I, and, and not every vendor out there does this. Um, a, a lot of them do. Um, but there's still a lot of departments and in, in, in military units and different things like that, that will not buy a, a dog unless it has possession. Right. So, um, you know, they go, oh, that dog's no good. He doesn't want to possess it. Well, okay. Well, it does, but if, if the dog, that goes back to the whole reward thing, right? What does the dog truly value and believe that he's being rewarded for? Some dogs love the interaction with the handler. That is much, I can get a dog to do much more powerful behaviors if he loves to interact with me versus a dog who just wants to possess it and go out in a corner and, and chew on it by itself. But I don't think people truly understand that. So if the dog, you know, if you give them a ball and the dog goes, are you going to play? Nope. Okay. And drops it. They're like, oh, that dog's not a working dog. Well, no, it's just, you know, so there's a lot of people that are still out there that, that do that. Um, and at a very early stage, these dogs are, or just teased to hell with these reward objects and, right. and building so much drive and frustration, um, you know, to, to get them to want to possess it. And then again, further on down the road, it just makes it much more difficult um, for them to work with us, such as, you know, the dog, like you were talking about, Oh, the dog didn't want out. He's biting people. And this is that. Well, yeah, because you know, when they were young, probably all this, this frustration work and, and all this craziness, mm -hmm. um, you know, like you said, the dog's like, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, I can have all these balls and, and different things like that. So it's in the context of how you yeah. show the dog what that right. reward value is. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, that's a big important piece and all that, especially to learn how, you know, most of these dogs are just, you know, how, why do they love this piece of rubber object? Well, because they were teased the hell with it. Um, and, and, and people tapped into that, that dog's prey drive and you know you know whether you start when they're a puppy and put things on flirt poles or whatever that natural movement of that item draws that good working dog's attention right and then you know you start teasing them so much with it and uh and, and now the dog looks at us like man this is the asshole that won't let me have it and when i get it i just want to have it i don't want nothing to do with it now he's taking it away so hmm, maybe i'll bite him you know right. and, and see if that works so um yeah i think you know there's a whole nother topic on on, on stuff like that oh sure Absolutely. You know, it's interesting how that whole, how that whole uh, thing plays out with, uh, with outwork and, and just everything in general, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm a big believer um, that it's about manipulating the mind. So how yeah. do we do that? Sure. If there's conflict between me and a dog, I want to remove the conflict. So why sure. would I want to beat the dog like crazy to get him to do what I want. I become sure. part of the frustration, part of the problem. Sure. And I, I really think that more people need to hear stuff like this. There's a lot of talented trainers out there, a lot of talented handlers, both in military, police, sport dog world. Yeah. So it's, it's not everybody that I, I think is just behind the power curve. I just want to be a useful tool in bringing more mm -hmm. knowledge to the to uh, people that don't know. And that's why I love talking to people yeah. like you. You've got an impressive uh, history working with dogs. Um, you do it on a professional level 
for the government. So it's, it's, um, it's really cool to hear your take on this stuff. One of the cool things, um, and, and, and again, I, I've always kind of looked into the psychology piece of this for many years, not to the level that you do, um, but, you know, years, the same dog that I basically turned into a, uh, an asshole um, that could work around a team. Um, that same dog, um, it, it was interesting because this was, this was on the detection side, but, you know, this was with, um, you know, you, you got, uh, you know, these people that are, oh, you can only, you can only give the dog the reward for detection. You can't use it during obedience. All these different things out there, right, on how to train a detection dog. Well, so it's funny because um, this plays into what we talked about with what do we perceive the dog uh, what is the dog thinking um, is rewarding to him, you know? Mm -hmm. So, the, and I remember the first time I showed my kennel master at the time this, he, uh, he was kind of like, what in the hell are you doing? So um, I, 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 I'll get to the end point of this, which was uh, uh, he set up a, a detection scenario for me. And, and so, uh, so I, I brought my dog in, put him in a sit and uh, pulled out a Kong. And uh, he looked at me and goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to give him this Kong and he's going to go search. And he goes, well, why in the hell would you do that? That's his reward. And I said, that's what you think his reward is. And, uh, and he just kind of looked at me and I said, hey, just let me do it. Just trust me. So, so I, I put him in the sit, give him his reward, and I sent him to search. And, and that dog found every single odor with that Kong in his mouth. And what it, when he got to the odor, same behaviors. Man, that dog was super excited. His tail was wagging. He would drop that one and he would go into it down and he would just wait for me to give him another one. Um, and when I would give him another one, he would go right back, right? So that just shows you right there that we can manipulate the dopamine release and what that and kind of we can manipulate the dog's brain into thinking what we want like you said we gotta we gotta work instead of having that conflict so and what's funny is is what did that do dog out of that toy super easy because it was not possession anymore the dog was like man this is where all the fun is right here this is where my this is what i, I and, and i don't know this because i couldn't hook him up to all these fancy machines or do blood work right but i truly believe that the dopamine release that that dog got was greater when he was in that odor because if if it wasn't why would he search with with the reward already in his mouth that's a good point um, so it's interesting to see how we can manipulate the dog um, and, and the dopamine releases and all these different things to, to work with us and not against us. Well, and I think that's why a lot of handlers are failing is because they put so much pressure on the dog that doing the search in itself is not fun anymore. Yes, so there you go. It's not rewarding. Through the motions to get the fun thing at the end. And that's been that's my right. argument for about the last two years now is yeah. why can't we make the job in itself the reward? Yeah. And then there's just a greater reward at the sure. end. Well, and think about it this way, right? And this is on the same context, I believe, as well, is, is you look at it and say, okay, so um, to place training, right? You're, you, or you start, with, you start with directionals. Um, first is just teaching a dog to go to a pallet, right? Mm -hmm. Well, why is it that, yes, in the beginning, we, we, um, we'll, we'll reward the dog for going to the pallet, whether it's food at first to get the repetition in, then we'll maybe transfer to a Kong. Well, it's funny because almost, almost every dog that, that I've done this with, um, when they go to the pallet and, we, and I mark them, I said, yes, buddy, that's it. They come back and get the reward. Guess where they go back to? Mm -hmm. They go back to the pallet and they just want to lay there and chew on their Kong. Why would they do that if that, if, if that place where they learned that that's how they got rewarded, why, if that didn't matter to them? You know, right. Because they could easily take that reward and go run off somewhere else, but they chose to go right back to that pallet. And I said, hmm, if that's what they're doing with the reward, why can't I do that with detection too? Um, why, can't I make, why can't I make the odor and the search and just the game of it super fun? Why does the end result have to be just 
Kong or ball or whatever? Why does it have to be so driven in that aspect? Um, and, and I also equate that to bite work too. You know, I know we had this conversation and I always tell my, it was funny cause you know, all the, um, the, the stuff going on in the world, you know, with, with COVID and all that. And, and I told my, my guys, you know, I said, Hey, if, uh, cause again, it's just bite, 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 bite. All everybody wants to do is bite work, you know? And I said, Hey, if your dog forgets how to bite in six months, I'll give you my stimulus check and you can have it. Like he's not going to forget how to bite. That's right. Um, you know, I, I said, there are so many other things that we need to work on other than biting. And that is exactly how I turned that one awesome dog into a complete monster that now I really couldn't utilize and tap into his potential because I ruined him and I couldn't employ him in team aspect because all I did was bite pressure work, right? right. There's a time and a place for that. You got to test the dog. You got to make sure that he's good and he can do that. But once he shows you he can do it, why do you keep doing it, right? We always come because it's fun. We come up with all these new inventive exercises to do. And at the end of it, man, um, SWAT teams can't work with dogs because now they're just trying to nuke everybody because we did that to them. But people don't understand understand but well i have to get my dog ready i have to get him ready well yes you do but you you test him in certain areas and then once he's good with that you don't need to keep doing it because you keep if you if you do keep doing that you're going to turn him into what i have turned dogs into um mm -hmm. you know and, and they're still going to be reliable for you they're still going to bite they're still going to do all these things but they're going to be more of an asset because they can work around people they can work around a team and they're still going right. to bite when you ask them to you know? right yeah that's a very good point man very good point um Wow, that this has been an excellent conversation. Um, and I think that, well, I hope that our listeners are gonna think a little bit more about how they're doing their training, how they're repeating certain things. Um, I really hope that this opens people's eyes to, there, there's a hundred ways to skin a cat. Sure. Um, and it's the same thing with dog training. So it's finding that perfect balance for your particular dog and, don't be afraid to use other tools. Don't be afraid to listen to other podcasts. Look, maybe 90% of what somebody else says at a seminar is bull crap, but what if there's that 10% sure. means something to you? Maybe they said the same thing that you've always heard, but they said it differently. The major yeah. light bulbs go off. So I always encourage people, go listen to everybody, but test everything that you hear. Yes. We, 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 it, yes. I think one big thing is a takeaway is we just got to be, handlers got to be smart on this stuff. And, yeah. and um, even like this podcast, right? Or how our conversation from today, people may look at this and go, man, I didn't think about that, right? Well, I encourage, challenge it, man. I encourage you to, because yeah. that's one thing that we're missing in this canine community that the scientific community has right, is they want to prove themselves wrong because that's how they get better. But in the canine community and many others too, not just us, we are so afraid of failing and yeah. being wrong that we never learn. And that's where we get stuck in that theory, those theory-based trainers. Yeah. And that is the worst thing to do. So when we go out and listen to these seminars and other podcasts, yes, I mean, there, there's going to be some good information and take it, but we really got to be smart on, right. on, on deciding what you want to implement and what you don't want to. Um, yeah. and, and I think, you know, just like you said, um, um, your dog is different than everybody else's. And, and kind of my last thing, um, here is, is, uh, you know, we, we dive into some group training, right? I, you know, I, I get group training, especially for PDs and different things like that. You know, Wednesdays are my training nights or whatever the case is, man. But there is, I, I tell you what, these, these, uh, group training sessions are one of the worst things that I've ever seen for these dogs. Um, it is just, you know, because it's the same scenario, yeah. you, your dog doesn't need what that dog needs, right? Every dog had a different week, you know? Um, and then one of my old mentors said the same thing is, is how can you do the exact same thing for 20 dogs? You can't because what if that dog, you know, what if it's a PD dog and that dog had uh, four bites 
um, this month in this dog had zero bites. So you mean you're going to, if that dog had four bites, this dog had zero bites on the street, you're going to set up another bite. Hell no. That dog that's had four bite needs some, needs some drive capping. He needs control work, man. That dog don't need a bite anymore, but maybe <laughs> that true. dog, you know, maybe that dog that hasn't had a bite in three months, maybe give him something. Right. Um, but you know, the, these group training sessions are just, it, it's, it's crazy. And that just kind of goes back to, you know, and I get why people do it. It's a time thing and department policies and things like that. But, um, I, I think there's a way to be smart about it and, and change yeah. it up to what your dog needs. Um, and, and still kind of being, uh, true to what, and, and I base everything off context, man. Um, you know, I, my, my training has skyrocketed since I really started putting in the work with contextual learning. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's funny because it, it could be something as simple as, um, you know, uh, a, a very, very important thing that all my handlers, and this is, this was, and I never understood this. I, you know, when I was younger is, is they would tell me, well, and I even experienced this. And I know a lot of you guys probably would experience this too, is you go, man, why does my dog, uh, not search as hard when it's just me and him searching, but yet the minute the trainer shows up or it's a group training session, you got 20 dogs out there barking and he's searching his ass off. Guess why that is contextual learning. That's right. Dog understands when he's going to get rewarded and when he's not and how much effort to put into it. And once you really dive into that, then your, your, your training will take off. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm really glad that you brought that up. That was a great thing to talk about in closing here. Um, so man, great conversation. Yeah, it's Thank been you awesome. so much for joining awesome. us today. And, um, I know that there's going to be a lot of people that is going to, um, this is going to inspire people to think a little bit differently with their dog training. And uh, sure. thank sure. you. Thank you. No, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Anytime I get to, you know, talk to you and pick your brain, it's, it's awesome for me as well because I get to learn too, so. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, buddy. I'm still learning just like anybody else. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, stay safe, watch your six, and as always, Semper Fi.